God, as we open your word, I pray that you would, as Jerry prayed, I pray that you would, you would renew our minds, you'd change us. God, I pray that we would, uh, Lord, we'd have perspective as to how to live. I pray that your spirit would continue to work. We praise you for the promise that you will. And God, I, I ask that as we open your word, that we would have a, a, a continuing corporate time of worship in the way, not only God, your word is proclaimed, but I pray in the way that it is heard in a way that we have an eagerness to be shaped by your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you got your Bible, if you'd open up to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. This morning we're going to be looking at Titus 3. Tommy read it for us, and I wanted to, to get it in our hearts and our minds before I came up. The, the title that... I have for this message is the purposeful Christian life, the purposeful Christian life. Uh, I was, uh, when we were uh, at a conference a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of the people on stage mentioned at the time there was 66 days until Christmas, and uh, there was a gasp in uh, the room, and, uh, and there's 50 days until Christmas now, and uh, there's 18 days until Thanksgiving. And, uh, you know, regardless of where you are in life, uh, if, you're, if you have younger kids uh, or if you have older kids, isn't it crazy, like, how things are changing? You know, you're going from uh, high school football, and, and now they're coming into the playoffs and had a great season, and now you're getting ready to have high school basketball. Junior high basketball has already started. If you got little kids, you've gone to flag football, soccer, and you're already gearing up for basketball just in the last couple of months. And in the midst of all that, you're just trying to figure out what you have to do this next week. You've got responsibilities, you've got meetings, you've got appointments, and you're just trying to figure out what to get on the dinner table tomorrow night, moms. And in all of that, what is lost often is the real meaning of your life. You think about that? that that's, what, that's what happens. I mean, life is so busy, it takes place, and what we desperately need is for God to give us our bearings. We desperately need for the Holy Spirit to give us meaning in the midst of the mundane yet very, very busy, ordinary calendar. And, and that's what Paul does here. We see this purposeful life that is lived. And, and, and so, so many times what you see the apostle Paul do along with all scripture writers is a lot of times they're not giving new concepts. They're saying the same thing several different ways. And what he does at the close of chapter two, we read that last time, he summed up the instructions for the church. You could see really like an argument that he gives like, okay, here's how I want you to live within the walls of the church. And obviously the walls of the church is speaking not of a building. It's speaking of like uh, more of a, a metaphor for the body of Christ and living life with the body of believers. And it, but then he moves from that. And he says, okay, here's how I want you to live in the world. Here's how I want you to live in front of those that don't know Jesus. And notice what he does in verse 11 of Titus 2, if you weren't with us last time. Here's sort of the summary of how Christians are to live. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. This passage right here is the anchor of everything he's already said in Titus chapter 2, and I really believe it serves as the anchor for everything he says in Titus chapter 3. It's the pivot point. Everything he says in chapter 3 could be traced back to Titus 2, 11 through 13. Everything he says in Titus 2, 1 through 10, Titus 2, 11 through 13. It's exciting because it's so wonderful, the implications of the grace of Jesus Christ. So today, in light of this purposeful Christian life, I really believe as we look at chapter 3, 1 through 6, Three movements to help us understand how Paul connects the dots. The first one, we are to live adorning the gospel. Now, he doesn't use that word adorn in chapter 3, 1 through 6, but he's just used it, and I really believe it's the implication of what he's just told them. If you go back, we saw in Titus 2 these instructions in the church. He's telling the older men how to live, the older women, the younger women, the younger men, the bond servants. And look what he said in verse 9. In verse 9 of Titus 2, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. And this is the heartbeat behind all of the instructions to the church. And he uses it specifically with bond servants, but it's the overriding principle. And he says, so that in everything they may what? Adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The way it was explained to me years ago was that you take the brilliance of a diamond, and if you have a beautiful diamond, it's very difficult to think about adding luster to the diamond. But one way you can enhance the beauty and the luster of the diamond is the backdrop in which you place the diamond. Like today, if I had a, a diamond that was really expensive and a lot of carrots, and we put that diamond and we put it back here on the stage and I, and I got a background, a black background, and I placed that diamond in the midst of the black backdrop, it would add luster and it would enhance the brilliance of that diamond. And it's as if Paul is saying, when you live in light of this glorious gospel, your life becomes a way to enhance the luster of the glorious gospel of Jesus. You see, the alternative is what we saw when he was speaking to the young women. He said in verse 5, the older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. 
He says, your life is either going to adorn the gospel or it's going to bring blasphemy to the gospel. He sums up chapter two with the grace of God and what the implications are. He moves into chapter three and it's still on his heart. It's still on his mind. And remember, these are translator chapters and verses. This is one letter, and we don't, it's just one consistent letter. He goes right into let no one disregard you at the end of chapter two, and then he jumps in, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. These are instructions that the body of Christ needs to be reminded of in living amongst a lost world. Remind. Don't we need to be reminded of so many things? Wow. Remind, remind, remind. The, the truths that we can't lose sight of. I, uh, I've told you this before, but being a preacher's kid, I, I, I had the wonderful blessing of uh, hearing my dad all the time. Uh, but as a young, immature teenager, there were times where I was like, Dad, I've heard you say it before. And I hear you every week. I love you. I got you. And he would always quote this verse to me as we were sitting in the car, and he was reminded me of my attitude towards my sister and what it reflected about my heart before God. He had such a gentleness. He was firm. But a lot of times he'd say, Stephen, Paul tells the Philippians, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. You need to be reminded. And Paul says, remind the church of these things. And today, they're as relevant to us as they were to the believers in Crete. The first one, there's seven instructions here. Seven instructions. So we're in the first movement here of the argument. He starts out and he says, live adorning the gospel seven different ways. Number one, be submissive to rulers and authorities. If you were going to put this in the most simplistic of terms, Paul is saying to the church, Christian, you be the greatest citizens there are. You be the model citizens wherever you live. You live with such an attitude of respect. You live with such an attitude of God's way in which he's ordained the structure of where you live. You honor it. You know, we see here, be submissive to rulers and authorities. That word submission is, is a word that's used a lot, and it means to place up under in an orderly fashion to place in order. Submission, we, I mentioned it earlier when we were going through chapter two, you've got submission to parents, submission to husbands, you've got submission to Christ, you've got submission to one another, you've got submission to rulers and authorities, you've got submission to elders, a lot of different contexts in how it's used. But, but here he's simply saying, look, you honor the rulers and authorities above you. Some passages that might help put this in perspective uh, are one passage. You could look at Romans 13, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll read that one to you. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, 
whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. It's important to realize here that the only time we are not to follow the rulers and authorities is if we, in doing so, would break the commandment of God. And any time rulers or authorities give us commandments that go against the word of God, we have to remember we serve God, not man. But when they are not calling us to break the commandment of God, and that's not an issue, we need to be the best citizens we can possibly be within a culture. I was reading uh, about the Cretans, and, and one source that I looked at really helped. There was an ancient writer, I think his name is pronounced Polybius, and he wrote that Cretans were notorious for a rebellious spirit and were constantly involved in insurrections, murders, and wars. And Paul is saying, look, Christian, you live in such a way, allow your testimony to be seen in the way you treat the authorities above you. It's a bad witness for the cause of Christ when people are not good citizens in the way they respond to the rule that God has placed above them. And what we have to remember is in the context of Romans and in the context of 1 Peter, we're not talking about godly governments. We're not talking about people who went to God's word to get guidance as to how they ought to lead. Yet what Paul and what Peter are emphasizing here is one of the ways that we can adorn the gospel. It's fascinating because I have this passage to read to you later on. Paul speaks about adorning. Peter, in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, I mean, you're talking about a time period where Nero's rule is, is the backdrop. And he says, Beloved, I urge you, in chapter 2, verse 11 of 1 Peter, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And then he says this, and hear the heart, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then he turns right around. And then in the next verse, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. One of the greatest platforms that we can observe what Peter's speaking about is with our response to rule and authority. And then he says to be obedient. The word is, is used in the way of, of obedient to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. Um, Follow. It's uh, the same idea, I think, of what Jesus says about give to Caesar what is Caesar's. It's, it's in that same vein. So, so adorn the gospel. Understand that even as a citizen, your responses are being watched. And again, you know, those in a society like Crete that were known as liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, they weren't good citizens, he says, no, Christian, live differently. And then he says something. He transitions a little bit. He says, number three, to be ready for every good work, 
to be ready for every good work. I want you to think about, as we look at this passage, praying with me, that God would give us a desire to look at life that way. Now think about it. Instead of just getting up tomorrow and going through your day to actively pray, God, would you give me insight to be ready for every good work? To be ready for every good work. This is such a joy because this is a view of the world that is under God's control. And this is a view of the world that understands the the, the, the amazing reality of our salvation that understands the predicament of man, that understands the call to be light, that understands the implications of our character, and now prays in the mundane and in the ordinary, God, would you give me eyes to see how I can serve and be an, a minister, do ministry to others, by being prepared for every good work, to be ready for every good work. I think that's something that we can lose sight of. We can forget to be ready, to be ready. It means to be prepared, to be prepared for something, to be prepared for every good work. Wouldn't it be, I think we all can relate. It takes one to know one, so I can't point a finger at you. I got three coming back to me. But think about it, how a lot of people that are professing Christians, they just, they live to survive the day. Oh, I got to get through this. I got to, well, this is hard. I, 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 I. But wait a minute. What if now we go, wait a minute, wherever God has placed me, whether it's in a classroom where I've got to listen to this lecture for an hour and 15 minutes in this block, whether it's in a practice whether it's in yard work, whatever I'm doing, I want to do all of the glory of God. And I want to live my life under his rule and his reign in such a way that the people that God puts in front of me become opportunities to be a light for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a different way of living? I'll tell you, I, again, you know, it takes one to know one. And, and I feel like in my own struggle, when we lose sight of how God orders our lives, when we lose sight of what it means to be effective light and effective salt as Christians, we can then not see the opportunities we have to be a light and an adornment for the gospel of Jesus. Be ready for every good work. I like what uh, John MacArthur says here. He says, this attitude, that attitude is a direct contrast to that of false teachers. And he references what Paul says in, at the end of chapter one. You remember what he said in verse 16? He says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. Being detestable and disobedience, disobedient. And then he says this, and worthless for any good deed. But here it's as if Paul is saying, look, on the contrary, rather than being worthless for any good deed, I want you to live, Titus. I want you to teach the believers to be prepared for every good work, prepared for it. How, how can we do that? I want you to think, how do you prepare? I mean, if I say you got to prepare for a test, you study, you 
you memorize, you got to work at it. Uh, if I say you got to prepare to, uh, you know, play an instrument, you got to practice. You got to do a lot of work. I mean, think about, you know, preparations for something you got to do at work. You've got to be, you've got to think through that. But, but notice something that Paul says in another passage that I think really applies here. Because I want you to think about it. it I think it involves minds that are renewed by the word of God and prayer that God would have us have that mindset. Paul says in Colossians, and remember when he's praying for the Christians at Colossae, and he says, and so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. That it's as if Paul is saying, I want, I want to pray that, that you would be controlled with the word in such a way, it's the attitude of God, I'm going to, as I get in your word, by the power of your spirit, would you enable me to follow it? Would you guide my thoughts by it? Would you guard my motives by it? Would you take your truth and take my life and, and let it be out of love to you lived underneath your truth? And he says, as a result, what happens? He says in Colossians, he says that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then he says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And then notice this, bearing fruit in every good work. If I'm going to be prepared for good works, it is going to be a necessity by the grace of God to be immersed in the word of God and, and, and allow the word of God to dictate how I live. Be prepared for every good work. It's comprehensive, isn't it? It's, uh, it reminds you of Galatians where Paul says, therefore, as we have opportunity, we must work for the good of all especially for those who belong to the household of faith. And now all of a sudden, the people in your life that you encounter on a day-to-day -day basis, they're not just random uh, chance-type encounters. Now God has brought people in front of you to do every good work, to, to do to everything you think about. And in the book of Titus, this phrase, good works, are used everywhere. It becomes a major theme. We think about God's design for the local church, and one of the designs of the local church is that there be godly leadership, that the word of God is taught, that people may live in good works out of their glorious salvation. Think about it. That, that we would rehearse the gospel as we go through Titus, and we would go, wait a minute, this is what's true in light of that being true, God's calling me to good works. He's calling me not to good works to seek to earn my salvation, as we'll see in Titus 3, 5, and 6, but good works that flow out of this glorious salvation. Chapter 1, I just read verse 16. In chapter 2, verse 7, remember he tells Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In chapter 2, verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are what? Zealous for good works. 
chapter 3, verse 1, to be ready for every good work. But then he's going to say it again in verse 5. Let's get a preview here. Look at verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, according to his own mercy. And then he flows right into that. And look what he says in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. You won't believe it. He says it again in verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So we see a bunch of these realities here. I mean, adorn the gospel. How can you do that? Well, submit to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. Be ready for every good work. And then he says to speak evil of no one. You know, we can all relate to this. When, when we think about our flesh and we think about who we are apart from Christ and when we're not walking uh, submitted and filled by the Spirit, we have a tendency to tear people down, don't we? And not lift them up. And, and I want you to think, think about how a Christian testimony is damaged by speaking evil of other people. We've all done it. We've all been around it. But when Christians... Speak evil of others. It's a damaging witness to the gospel of Jesus. And so we see here, in light of what God has done for you, don't speak evil of others. Ephesians chapter 4 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. That's Ephesians 4 verse 31. And then he says, Don't speak evil and don't seek to quarrel. We can all relate to uh, uh, people that, again, it takes one to know one, but we all can relate to people that want to quarrel about everything. They always want to argue. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's about the weather. It's about politics, theology, sports. They want to argue. They want to quarrel about everything, and it shows something. And he's saying, look, Christian, as you live your life, Watch your tongue. Guard the way you speak. Guard the way you live. Don't be known to be a, one who battles, one who's disposed to fighting. But then he says to be gentle, to be gentle. This word is uh, exciting because it's a word that only the Holy Spirit can produce. It's used in Philippians 4 when Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The, the word means fair, it's the idea of uh, free from harshness, sternness, or violence. It's, it's the idea of a person who's lenient. And it's, it, it's, it's speaking of when it's appropriate to be unassertive, to be fair, to be appropriate, to be suitable, to be proper. Matthew Henry says, not taking words or actions in the worst sense. Isn't that good advice? We've all been guilty of this, where something happens and words are used or somebody does something, and rather than give somebody the benefit of the doubt, we take it in the worst sense possible. And he's saying, no, 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 you be gentle. You be gentle. As a Christian, in light of the glorious gospel, 
as you live, a wonderful way to show the light of the gospel is the way you treat others in gentleness. Gentleness. It's one um, Bruce Hurt says, it's the idea of giving way, of taking wrong rather than of revenging the injuries we receive. And then he shows another way of looking at this. He says, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. I want you to think about something here. This is encouraging. Think of the wonderful grace of Jesus Christ. In Christ Jesus, his people, and if you're a Christian this morning, I got good news for you. You're one of his people. You're one of his children. We like sheep, all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And now as a gift to his salvation because of his resurrected life in us, we have a better way to live with people around us. And because of the risen power of Christ, now we can live rather than being vicious, rather than being quarreling, rather than speaking evil. We can live gentle and we can show perfect courtesy. It means perfect consideration. And the word means it's the idea of, uh, it's used in Matthew 5. It's meekness. It's, it's, it's the word that I told you before where uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his uh, studies in the Sermon on the Mount, it's a really great read. It's a tough read, but it's a wonderful read. And when it says, blessed are the meek, he says meekness is that quality where uh, somebody criticizes you or says something evil of you and your response rather than defensiveness and revenge is like, if you only knew the whole story, you could say a lot more than you just said. Meekness. Meekness is a understanding of who you really are before God. It softens you. A humility of who you are. It changes your defense mechanism when people insult you. It gives you a proper perspective of the grace of Christ. It, um, it's an, it, Richard Trench says, it's an inwrought grace of the soul. It's a temperament of the spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. It is the humble heart that does not fight against God. And it reveals itself in the way we treat others. So we've got a lot of different ways that we can pray through here. We've got seven different callings of, of living, adorning the gospel. He says, look, be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. Be ready for every good work. Don't speak evil of people. Don't quarrel. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy, courtesy to, all, to all people. But then he does something. I love how he does this. Um, he, it's similar to what Jesus says in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Give glory to your father who is in heaven. And, and now it's like, okay, we are to live adorning the gospel, but now he transitions. We're to live adorning the gospel. These areas were, are practical ways we can do that. Now we need to be mindful. Number two, mindful of who we were before Christ. Wow. Wow. Live this way 
Again, it's going to relate. If you, if you put down in one column Titus 2, 11 through 13, and you wrote out your observations, and then you put in another column Titus 3, 1 through 4, you would find so many similarities. He's just saying things a little bit different. But now he says, who were you before Christ? He says, for we ourselves, and he gives six different realities. Let's look at them. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, number one. Disobedient, number two. Led astray, number three. Slaves to various passions and pleasures, number four. Passing our days in malice and envy is number five. Hated by others and hating one another. He's like, remember who you were. You remember when Paul writes to the church at Corinth and, and they're doing all these crazy things. It's... uh. And in chapter three, he goes, are you not living like mere men? <laughs> He's like, have you lost sight of what God has done? And here he, he, he wants them to say, look, live this way. You're living with outsiders. They don't know Christ. And one of the ways that you can be mindful of what God's called you to is to remember where you were and how God has brought you somewhere different. And it will help you to understand the people and why they act like they do. Have you ever gotten so frustrated with non-believers and, and you lost sight of the problem that they truly had was a heart problem? I've done that before. I've gotten so disillusioned or so irritated at the individual. And then it's like, wait a minute, but, but by God's grace, what did God do in my heart to bring me to a different disposition? If I can understand my past, I might have better wisdom and understanding, not only as to how to live now, but how I'm dealing with those around me. The first one, foolish, it's ignorance. One who lives ignorantly. He's foolish. He's disobedient. You know what the word disobedient? We once were foolish, disobedient. We were unwilling to be persuaded, unbelieving, disobedient, unwilling to be persuaded, disobedient. You think about when you're just disobedient. Have you ever been in a, in a situation where you had authority over a, a group of uh, kids and they acted disobedient nonstop, that's a lot of fun. Man, you get frustrated. Hey, please do this. Nope. Please do. Nope. I mean, I used to do it to people when I was younger. But you know what? Think about it. This is, this is who we were at, at the heart, at the core. We were led astray. Led astray. It means to cause, to wonder, lead astray. You think about the, uh, the mindset of the world. Do you realize, have you, have you caught this in like, in the culture? It's so easy to lead people in how to think. Have you caught that? No matter what the issue is. It's like, okay, y'all come over here, follow me. Everybody, oh, let's go this way. We better think this way. Let astray, let astray. Away from the truth, away from knowledge, away from discernment. It's right before our eyes. Why do people do that? Because it's a heart issue. The heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. And, and here he goes on. He says, let astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. 
wow, think about how many comprehensively you could fill in here. This doesn't just have to involve, we, we typically think of passions and pleasures and we think about immoral passions, things like that. But you're talking about a heart that is not right with God and how that is going to display in all manners of idolatry. You know, you go after all these things. You're slaves to various passions and pleasures. And then he says, passing our days in malice and envy. Here's, what, here's what's really remarkable. The person who passes their days in malice and envy would never describe it this way. They don't have the insight or the knowledge to do so. They would be like, I'm just living my life. What's wrong with you? And yet the biblical explanation of hearts that are not right before God, that are enmity with God, at the core, below the surface, days are passed in malice. Malice is like, it, you could have a bunch of rooms in a house and it had a lot of evil. Each room was entitled some different kind of evil. You could name the house malice. Malice would be the backdrop word, the common denominator. And then he says, envy. Envy is a terrible word. Envy is, uh, I just got a chance two weeks ago to hear a former college student. Man, he did a great job preaching. It was such joy to hear him preach. In Santa Fe, New Mexico, he's pastoring a church, and we walked in unannounced. It was awesome. And he, he talked about envy, and he says, envy is when you want what others have, and you don't want them to have it. It's sorrow for another's good. You're happy when they're sad and sad when they're happy. That's horrible. But you know what? I'll tell you, I don't trust many people who tell me they can't relate to that in their flesh. In your flesh, that's who you are, apart from the grace and the goodness of the gospel of Jesus. And Jesus Christ has brought you out of malice and envy and has shown you a different way. He's saying, look, know who you were. And then he says, hated by others and hating one another. Think about maybe elementary school or junior high back in the day. And, and, and sometimes we can see with others better than ourselves. But think about the kid who's like the bully in the class. And that kid, is he, does, he hates you. And you're thinking, what did I do? He just looks at me, hates me. I haven't done anything to him. He walks down the hallway mad at me. I don't know what I did. But if you know, that kid hates you. But guess what? Other people hate him. <laughs> He hates you. They hate him. It's like an animosity. And what will bring resolution to such an issue? Only the gospel of Jesus Christ. I tell you, um, the only one that can bring peace, I think about it just in the context of the world, the only one that can bring peace to the Middle East is Jesus Christ. <laughs> Why? Because people that don't know Christ are marked by hatred and hating one another. Only Christ can change that. He comes on here, and then he says this. Let's look at the last part. He says, live adorning the gospel, mindful of who you once were. Third, and in light 
of our glorious salvation. Look what he does in this final part. But when the goodness, you see what he's doing? Hey, live adorning the gospel. Here's seven practical ways. Never forget who you once were before Christ now. In light of what has God done, verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. I'm going to touch on just a few things here, and then next time we'll go further. But notice some of the descriptions of Christ. Go back to chapter 2, 11 through 13, and the grace of God. He speaks of the glory of Christ. He speaks here of the goodness of Christ, the loving kindness of of Christ, and he speaks about the mercy of Christ. And he saved us, Paul says, not because you were pretty good, not because you were actually someone worth recruiting, not because you had your act together, not because you were pretty religious, not because you were better than the other people, no, not because of works done by us in righteousness. There was nothing good in us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23 says. I want to read to you Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe Think about it. We are unrighteous. What do we need? We need the righteousness of God given as a gift to us because we we're unrighteous. He says, for there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And here's the remarkable verse. Believer, there's hope for you and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. He took the wrath. He took our sin upon himself to be received by faith. And this is the hope of the Christian. And Paul here is saying, look, live adorning the gospel. Be mindful of who you were. Be mindful of the condition of those around you you're seeking to influence. But never lose sight of the glory of the gospel of Jesus. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And then he says this, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Wow. What is he talking about here? The washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. He's speaking about the miracle that takes place at conversion. When a, when, a, 
when a sinner believes on Jesus Christ, the miracle of what's going on behind the scenes. And it's a miracle that theologians call regeneration. Taking that which is dead and making it alive. This is so exciting. I think what it is, he's, a lot of people here, they get confused. And if you think of this externally, this is where people start going down the wrong path of thinking that water baptism saves. They think he's speaking of physical water. But if you see that this is something that takes place internally, that water baptism is a picture of, you will see baptism as a symbol of that internal work only the Spirit can do. Let me give you the passage I think he's referring to. Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He's saying, look, live your life mindful of who you once were, but what God has made you in Christ. He has regenerated you. He has made you alive. By grace through faith, you have been cleansed. You've been renewed of the Holy Spirit of God. And now you live your life in light of not only who you once were, but who you've been made in Christ Jesus. Now live adorning the gospel of God's grace. So as we close, three challenges Three challenges. I pray today we'd live, we'd leave thinking, okay, what does this mean for me? Reflecting on the call to live out of these seven practical ways to adorn the gospel. Let's reflect on the call. Everyone in here who's a believer, from the youngest to the oldest, God has called you to reflect who he's made you. But second of all, consider Consider your past. I tell you, you consider your past, it, it, it's humbling because it, I pray it leads you not only to praise, but it helps you to see at times when you're not living consistent with who God has made you in Christ. Consider your past. But then thirdly, praise God in Christ for what he has done for you. This morning, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, this is the only way that you can experience forgiveness. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ shed for sinners on the cross. Your only hope. But God has the power to take people who once lived pagan and to transform them 
into people who live out of good works. And how is that possible? Through the perfect obedience and the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. So today, look to him. Would you bow your head? God, I thank you for the reminder of what it looks like to live the Christian life in a world with unbelievers, in a world of foolish and disobedient people, but yet I thank you for reminding us that that's exactly who we once were. And Lord, even as we just introduced this idea of regeneration, I pray, God, that we would see that we're saved out of your goodness, loving kindness, and mercy. That we're saved because of your good works, not ours. And I pray that reflection, not only as to who we were, but what you've called us now in Christ, would change the way we see our lives. I pray that we wouldn't see our lives as insignificant, but Lord, we would see the glory that we can give you in living for you in light of what you have done for us in your son. I pray that your spirit would help us to get the true idea of what that looks like and what that means. We praise you for your goodness and your kindness and your mercy. We praise you for such a strong declaration of hope in your son. And I pray today that all in Christ would walk in that hope and in that praise. But oh Lord, I pray all those outside of Christ would see your goodness, your loving kindness, and your mercy. And I pray today they would trust in Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.